Do you ever wonder what God is like? Like, what are the characteristics? What are the, the qualities of our God? You know, is he mostly kind of grumpy, mostly kind of angry? I think when I grew up, that was a very strong image of God, that you had to be always doing the right thing, trying to, to keep on the good side of God, because it seemed that he was pretty easily ticked off, pretty easy to, to be grumpy. You know, wrath and anger seemed to be one of the, the strong characteristics of our God. And yet, when you read the scriptures, we see a God that actually, well, he defines himself in the book of Exodus after the people had betrayed the Lord, after you know, he'd given them the, the commandments, he'd brought them into this covenant relationship, he'd revealed himself to all of the nations gathered around the foot of Mount Sinai. And yet, in the midst of that, when Moses was up on the mountain, Aaron and the others led the people astray by creating a false idol. In the midst of that, the Lord was angry, but he then, when Moses kind of was in, engaged in this conversation, the Lord revealed himself by saying, Yahweh, a God of compassion, slow to anger, full of, of faithful love and mercy. And we can kind of forget the way that God is. For God simply wanted to be with his people, wanted to build a community, to be partners with God, to be the image bearers of God. We hear in the very first chapter of the, of the scriptures in the book of Genesis, this call to, to be the signs. And why shouldn't you build any idols? Because already his people are meant to be the image bearers, the idols, the, the signs. You know, if someone wants to know who God is, if someone wants to be in relationship with God, all they're meant to be able to do is to look at us, to look at someone who claims to know God, and that will be enough that we're able to understand that. And so God seemed to be quite content to be the, the leader of this community. He told them, I don't want any kings. I don't want you to be like all the other nations. I will dwell happily just in a tent in the wilderness. But David, the second of these kings, you know, had this, this sense. He's built a house for himself. Well, clearly it's now time to build a house for God. And as, you know, as Catholics, we kind of get that sense that we build these places, build these, these community halls, places where we can gather in worship. But the first impulse of the Lord, it seems, is to simply be in friendship with us, to not have a whole series of structures and rules and regulations and things that prevent that free flowing of grace and goodness and love and compassion and mercy. But we like structure, we like organization, and so we put all these things in place. And so when David tells Nathan that I've got this nice house of cedar, I want to build a temple, I want to build a place where God can dwell, Nathan thinks, yes, yeah, sure, that seems like the right thing to do. But it's only later that night that Nathan, the prophet, receives in prayer this insight to say, no, I don't want you yet to build this house. I don't want you yet to build this temple. And the Lord addresses David. And there's kind of a confusion because the word bayit in Hebrew can mean a whole lot of 
of different things in English. You know, one of the, the things about English is that we grab words from different languages. We kind of gather them and collect them all together. And so we have all these different kinds of, of words for sometimes a single idea, a semantic kind of root. And Bayit is one of those root words that is able to, to kind of be an umbrella term for family, for house, for temple, for dwelling, for dynasty. All these different ideas that in English we, we want to separate and divide into different domains. But in the Hebrew, it's just this one word, Bayit. And David says, I want to build you, Lord, a Bayit. But the Lord says, no, I will build of you a Bayit. I will build of you this this new sovereignty. I will build of you this kingdom. But ultimately, it's about family. Ultimately, it's about that personal relationship with God that Adam and Eve were first invited into. And when you see the different theophanies, those, those moments when the Lord reveals himself to a people, it's always just about be in friendship with me. Come and let me dwell with you. Come and let me be the very sign of my presence here in the world. And we see it, especially in the gospel today. When Mary's just there minding her own business, just going about her day, there's no description that she was doing anything particular, not even necessarily praying. She was just there, just in her house. Tradition has kind of indicated she was most likely of just come of age. It was the, the age when Jewish girls became mothers, well, became women, and so they were potentially mothers, and so that was usually the age when they would enter into to marriage. And so she's there with this sense of anticipation, there with you know, just this, this sense of wonder, when suddenly there is this angel of the Lord there before her. And you know, we've represented that in all kinds of different ways in art over the years, over the centuries, and often really kind of strange and, and weird descriptions of the angel and usually with you know wings and, and all that kind of stuff where the scripture doesn't actually describe angels with wings anywhere across the, the scriptures there are other forms the the cherubim and the seraphim uh, which is only mentioned once in the the book of isaiah but the the those angels have wings or those spiritual beings have wings but angels themselves are, are simply human-like simply representations of a different way of, of being in the presence of God. And so Gabriel is there. And you'll see in the, when you read the gospel again, Gabriel is quite chatty. <laughs> He's saying a lot of things to poor Mary. And Mary only has these two short lines across this whole gospel. And yet in the midst of all of that, there is this openness, this desire to be a faithful Jewish person, to be someone in relationship with God. And that is simply what sets her apart. That she hasn't done anything extraordinary other than just being open to God. Other than continuing to serve the Lord. Other than praying regularly. Other than reading the scriptures. Being familiar. When you see when she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. That she's able to burst into song. Almost quoting from the, the writings of Hannah. One of the, the great figures that we've had during the week that you read her story in the book of Samuel. And Mary has clearly immersed herself in the story of the scriptures, in the story of God's people, seen all the suffering, seen all the ways that people 
have stuffed things up and got things wrong and continued to disobey, continued to break out of that friendship that the Lord was inviting them into. And so when Gabriel speaks the words of God to her, and when Gabriel offers her this possibility of being in friendship, being in relationship, she knows there's only one response that she can offer. So she simply has to say, yes, let me be the handmaid of the Lord. Let me be the one who is the bearer of this message. Let me be the one who's able to serve the Lord in this way. It's the only invitation that any of us ever get. It might not be quite as dramatic as Gabriel's appearance to Mary in this instance. The Lord is always inviting us to go back into the wilderness, to back into that place of our first love, to return into that place where we can encounter him, where the Lord will hold us in his mercy where the Lord will forgive us our sins and invite us more deeply into that union with the Lord. It's the only invitation that we need to hear today. Will we say yes? Will we respond in our own way to let his love fill us and to let his love sustain and build us today? Will we be his people? Will we be called into union with the Lord? And will we let God's love and mercy and compassion so fashion us and shape us that indeed we do become the image bearers of a God of love and a God of mercy.